Dust on his desk where he sat, you remember. Trips to Catalina every December. Ringland Brothers, Barnum and Bailey. On the road with your dad, but it seems like lately. You don't want to get up, want to sleep all day, but it's never enough. Plus Dolores stopped calling, in your dreams the piano keeps falling. You saw Betty in the club, whiskey in your cup, wish you had someone to love. Toontown, no you haven't been back, when the memories return you'll be sipping on that jack. And you're tripping on the fact that a tune would attack, and leave your brother flat, now pieces what you lack. Used to be a lot of laughs way back in the day, now you drink so you can sleep and the nightmares go away. But you still see those eyes glowing red in his head, as you toss and turn in your Murphy bed. Remember how you saved Huey, Dewey, and Louie? Cleared Goofy's name, just like in the movies, where the good guys win. Finding a balance, no case too big, for valiant and valiant. That's why you miss your little brother So if we need to find you, you'll be hiding in these covers Eddie undercover Valiant. We can work it out, work it out, work it out Gotta put the bottle down, bottle down, bottle down Cause we haven't seen you around Your friends and family miss you when there's trouble in the town Eddie going down Valiant. We can work it out, work it out, work it out Gotta put the bottle down, bottle down, bottle down Cause we haven't seen you around Your friends and family miss you when there's trouble in the you town You remember laughter that high squeaky voice, those burning red eyes How you had to make a choice Should you chase the tune down Yoxa Street? Or stay with your brother, it was hard to see But Teddy never made it, he was crushed, you see Now you no longer trust the LAPD Cause they never found leads on that crooked tune In the dark alleyway, Teddy met his doom When you see the hills, all shiny and green You can't go back, cause you still hear his screams And now you know they've got meetings to help with the grief But you can't leave the house, think you'll take 40 winks And it's been 40 weeks since you last touched his desk Newspaper clippings in a pile, you can guess The Valiant Bros had the best reputation The gumshoes would come through, what a combination You pray one day you'll laugh again Call bugs up, like way back when Say, what's up doc, man, how you been? It will be so good to finally see your friends Because they've always been there When you're ready, you pour one out for your brother Teddy But until then, you're sleeping in Cause you can't face a world that he's not in Eddie Valiant we can work it out, work it out, work it out Gotta put the bottle down, bottle down, bottle down Cause we haven't seen you around Your friends and family miss you when there's trouble in the town Eddie going down it. We can work it out, work it out, work it out Gotta put the bottle down, bottle down, bottle down Cause we haven't seen you around Your friends and family miss you when there's trouble in the town going down You got a call from RK Maroon World renowned for maroon cartoons Went to his office, poured yourself a drink Saw Dumbo through the window when it made you think What the flying elephant in the room might be Saw his face in the glass and you took a seat On Maroon's newest project, he needed a hand He was over budget, 25 grand Cause a famous actor couldn't learn his lines A broken hearted rabbit, you were like, never mind You don't work for tunes anymore, don't be silly Forget Screwy Squirrel, forget Chilly Willy Forget Dinky Doodle, you had to let him go Just ask Angelo, you don't don't work for them no more You said RK You better call someone else Cause tunes on the run are bad for your health Eddie Valiant We can work it out, work it out, work it out Gotta put the bottle down, bottle down, bottle down Cause we haven't seen you around Your friends and family miss you when there's trouble in the town Eddie going down Valiant. We can work it out, work it out, work it out Gotta put the bottle down, bottle down, bottle down Cause we haven't seen you around Your friends and family miss you when there's trouble in the town Now going I know down. why you yank my ears all those times you yank my ears Cause you're mad at tunes Deep down it's clear that you're mad at tunes And you've been for years Now I know why you yank my ears All those times you yank my ears Cause you're mad at tunes Deep down it's clear Yeah, you're mad at tunes And you've been for years
everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 110 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about who framed Roger Rabbit on your He Weren't No Rabbit podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. And I guess this week wrote and performed the song that you heard in our intro. He's a rapper, cartoonist, a TEDx talk giving, record label running superstar. MC Lars, welcome to Pop Culturally Deprived. Thank you both for having me. Nice to speak with you. Yeah, really, really excited. So uh, I, I first heard your stuff, ironically, in a hot topic um, and fell in love with you doing, you know, Shakespeare and Melville, uh, Edgar Allan Poe and just some cool stuff. But you came to singing about Roger Rabbit quite late, but it's clearly something you like a lot. <laughs> yeah, you know, I interviewed the, the, the guy, Gary Wolf, who the mm. wrote the book, Who Censored Roger Rabbit, that the movie's based on. He was on my podcast a few weeks ago. And, you know, with, with the 30th anniversary last June, I wanted to do an EP about it. And it's just something that's, you know, to me, it's it's like reminiscent of an era before the world changed, before animation, you know, went to CGI, really. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it, it, to me, it's like indicative of, you know, I was five when the movie came out, and it's okay. very nostalgic for me. So yeah, thanks for bringing me on to talk about it with you too. Yeah, so you've got a six album, a six track album about it that then also includes a commentary. Yeah, it's called Notes from Toontown. And then the, on Bandcamp, the last track is me doing a commentary of the movie, the whole thing that syncs up with it. And then on my Zombie Dinosaur album, I did a song called The Dip, which is not on the EP. So I, I don't know what it says about me if it's like something <laughs> psychological. Um, at my when I got married in August, I, my my vows were based on Roger's note to Jessica. Oh, <laughs> so it's a bit it's a bit much maybe, but I'm I'm yeah I, I'm a fan, and it, I think it's just a movie that will never be made again and mm. could never be made again. And Eddie's sobriety, you know, all that is like it's, it's I can relate to that too. And so it's just very it's a great it's a great piece of pop culture history and i can't believe that this is the first time mandy has ever seen it i don't want to jump the gun but that's crazy (laughs) it is crazy i know i know it's yeah i get that a lot (laughs) (laughs) i'm jealous that you got to watch it for the first time that's kind of what i mean yeah so mandy how come you've not seen this this is actually one of the ones I was not allowed to watch when I was a kid. Uh, I wanted to. I remember begging to watch this movie because everybody else loved it. It had all these cartoons in it. And I wasn't allowed. I, I, I actually talked to my mom about this yesterday, and she doesn't remember this. I think <laughs> it's hilarious. She says that she knows she never cared for the movie, but she doesn't actually remember why. She didn't let me watch it, but she's also much different now than she was then. And I'm fairly certain that Jessica Rabbit was too sexual. And because Roger Rabbit was married to Jessica Rabbit, he had to be a pervert. So it was way too much for my like six and eight year old sensibilities back then. Yeah, I don't think you can defend that Jessica Rabbit is a sexual thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. There's no way around that one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But it's funny, though, because... My understanding of who Roger Rabbit was my whole life has been defined by my mom not allowing me to watch this movie as a kid. And so when I sat down to watch it, I was completely blown away that he was not at all what I expected. What did you expect him Mm. to be? That's an interesting point. Well, I expected him to be 
almost more like Jessica Rabbit or, or like Jessica Rabbit's counterpart. You know, not this silly, almost child, child likes the wrong thing to say, but he's very innocent and naive and he's got this high-pitched voice and he just wants to make people laugh. That is absolutely not what I expected. I expected somebody who was, I guess, more like Baby Herman, the real Baby Herman, mm-hmm. Like the 50-year-old lust with the three-year-old dinky. You know, that's what I was expecting from Roger and did not get it. It's weird. Like, I really am upset that I was not allowed to watch this movie and that I went my whole life thinking that it was something different than it is. The um, the, the author, Gary K. Wolf, when, he, when I interviewed him, he said that Roger and Eddie were the two sides of his personality. So Roger's like mm. the childlike, fun entertainer who's sweet and good. And Eddie's like, you know, Eddie's just the, the, the shadow side of Roger. And, and, mm-hmm. and Gary said as he gets older, Roger has become has come out more in him as he's been happier and found peace and like joy in his in his 50s and 60s. And I think that's interesting that Roger, I think, is this character that I relate to him because, you know, I had ADD as a kid and he's very over the top, out of control. But all he wants to do is make people laugh. And all he wants to do is is be there for his friends. But he can always sabotages himself and always like, you know, goes crazy. And his what makes him great as a cart as a cartoon also is like what constantly gets him in trouble. And to me, that's an interesting character because he's got more depth than Mickey or Donald or or even Bugs and I think that's cool that you had this preconceived notion and then you realized it sounds like you, you, you were drawn to him because he's more kind of innocent and, and sweet than you thought, if I'm reading you right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Did you know it was going to be a mix of cartoon and live action? I did, but I – so I thought it was going to be something like not where they existed in the same world, but where either a human gets pulled into the cartoon world or a cartoon gets pulled out more like Cool World. Okay, yeah, yeah. And so I didn't realize that it was just a world where they coexisted. Uh, interesting. Okay. Uh, do you want to give us some background before we get into your thoughts on it? So I recognize I am probably the only person who has never seen this movie, but <laughs> Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a 1988 hybrid live action and animated comedy film directed by Robert Zemeckis. Based on the 1981 novel Who Censored Roger Rabbit by Gary K. Wolfe, it stars Bob Hoskins, Christopher Lloyd, Charles Fleischer, and Joanna Cassidy. Walt Disney Productions bought the rights to the novel, believing it would be a blockbuster. Robert Zemeckis offered his services to direct, but he was turned down at the time. After the screenplay was written by Jeffrey Price and Peter Seaman, test footage was developed with Paul Rubens voicing Roger Rabbit, but it wasn't until Michael Eisner became the CEO of Disney that the project finally took off. Amblin Entertainment, Steven Spielberg's production company, was approached to produce alongside Disney, and it was Spielberg who convinced the other studios, like Warner Brothers, to allow their characters to also appear in the film. The film was ultimately released under the Touchstone Pictures banner because of the many sexual references in the film. Zemeckis had final cut privileges and refused to change anything. It opened number one and went on to gross nearly $330 million worldwide. It was the second highest grossing film in 1988 after Raid Man. And nominated for six Academy Awards, it won for Best Sound Effects Editing, Best Visual Effects, and Best Editing. Who Framed Roger Rabbit rekindled an interest in the golden age of American animation and served as a stepping stone for the Disney Renaissance. In 2016, it was added to the Library of Congress's National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. There was so much more to say about this movie. It was so hard to cut it down to just that little bit. That's a great synopsis. 
props to props to you for that (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's so much trivia and inside like how they did things how it was all put together people off at the side of the set well and even just who they wanted initially to play Mm -hmm. eddie like they offered it to harrison ford who turned it down because well he was too expensive uh they wanted chevy chase to do it he didn't want to do it they wanted Tim Curry to play Judge Doom, but he was too scary. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. <laughs> <laughs> so just reading about all of the different like iterations this movie went through was fantastic. Bill Murray, who they apparently couldn't track down. I don't know. <laughs> and Gary said that they did test screens with Eddie Murphy, but Eddie Murphy was too cartoony and like too mm-hmm. silly that he kind of he made the tunes less funny. So. I don't know if that's true, but that's what Gary said. And he was like, he said he was very involved with the production and stuff. So that's interesting trivia. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it works really well with someone playing it straight. Like we we did um, Muppets Christmas Carol and seeing Michael Caine coming in and doing it, that he's just performing with these things. He's not, you know, mucking about with it. It works so much better. Mm hmm. All right. Well, in a world where tunes and humans live together, Roger Rabbit is framed for the murder of Marvin Acme. P.I. Eddie Valiant, who hates tunes, ends up involved and has to help solve the case to save both Roger and Toontown. Okay. Where is it available to watch over there? Lars, do you own this? Do you own every copy of it? I I do. I have v, on VHS. I have it on Laserdisc. I have it on <laughs> DVD. And then wow. when it came out on Blu-ray, I bought it too. So I've definitely... And I definitely pirated it on, on my laptop. <laughs> okay. So and and um yeah and so I do own it. I think the Blu-ray is awesome because they like they there's some extra stuff in it and mm. it looks really good. It came out in 2013, I think. So you've got one of those triple X laser discs. <laughs> well, I, you know, I've have never watched it, but I don't know if it's the it's the recalled one. Right. So, <laughs> who knows? Yeah. Uh, Mandy, how have you been able to watch it? I had to rent it from Amazon. It is not on any of the subscription streaming services here in the States. Yeah, and sadly the same over here in the UK, uh, rented from Amazon. It apparently has been on both Netflix and Hulu, but it no longer is. Uh, Okay. It looked good in HD, though. Like you're saying with that Blu-ray one, this is a film that scales up really well. Yeah, and it it holds up because the effects being practical and traditional animation, it's some of like some of the early CGI doesn't look as good as this, even though it was mm-hmm. done ten years after, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Right, you said uh, Zemeckis directed, and then has a, a really strong cast. Uh, Mandy, have you seen them in anything else? What's some of their back catalog? I feel like we've talked about Zemeckis on the show before, but we haven't done anything in his filmography on the show, so I'm not really sure where I got that from. Um, probably because we live tweeted a Christmas Carol last year, but. Um, his filmography is actually really, really great. He's probably one of the more prolific directors that I've seen. Um, he did the Back to the Future films, Death Becomes Her, Forrest Gump, Contact, Castaway, The Polar Express, and then 2009's A Christmas Carol. Um, definitely has a thing for Tom Hanks, I think. Yeah. And he's got um, a really nice sort of family-friendly back catalog. So yes. much stuff in there you, you could watch at any era. Yeah. All of those are movies that I absolutely love, and I was surprised. And they're all so different from each other, but they're so good. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Bob Hoskins, I really am only familiar with him from 2009's A Christmas Carol. Um, I'm sure I've seen him in other things. I know um, Caitlin mentioned on Twitter that he was Smee and Hook. 
I wouldn't have figured that out just by watching him in this. Um, because all I see when I look at him now is Bob Cratchit. Mm-hmm. I can't help it. That's who he is now. <laughs> um, I did look through his filmography, and I, I'm not super familiar with most of what he's done, although he's done a lot over the years. Yeah. I mean, he's Mario. Let's let's put the big one out there. <laughs> yeah, but I haven't seen that one either. Yeah, and we're not going to watch that one. I'll tell you <laughs> that for them, fact. <laughs> Um, we've recently talked about Christopher Lloyd because we did Star Trek three and he is Klingon Doc Brown. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we've also had talked about Joanna Cassidy before she was on Blade Runner. And of course I've seen her in don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. I can't think of anything else that she was in that I'd be super familiar with. Although I, I can tell you that when she first showed up on the screen, if I hadn't already known that Joanna Cassidy was in it, I wouldn't have recognized her. Right. Is that Dolores? Yes. Okay. Can can I interject something interesting about Christopher Lloyd and the Zemeckis mm. connection, like a cool trivia mm. point? Um, he was working on Back to the Future 2. They were working on that together, like around the time this movie came out or before this movie came out, they were doing Back to the Future 2. And there's a scene where Marty McFly goes to like a retro place in the future and it's all retro stuff. And there's a Roger Rabbit doll in the window. But oh, it's really? funny because... It hadn't, Roger Rabbit hadn't come out. They were just expecting it to be a hit and expecting people to be nostalgic about it in 2015 or whenever Back to Future 2 takes place. So that's kind of cool that that connection between uh, Christopher Lloyd Zemeckis and like this anticipating the nostalgia people would have for the movie before the movie even existed. I just <laughs> wanted to share that trivia. Yeah, I like that because Back to the Future is not a Disney thing. No. So right. someone just had the doll and stuck it in. That's cool. Yeah, it's cool. Mm. you've reminded me mentioning uh touchstone we were talking the other day with with disney taking over fox like is it going to be a return of touchstone so they can release like deadpool movies and things now because some of the characters they're getting in i can't see disney doing Hmm. so we might we might see a return of you know the the adult disney (laughs) uh, gary also said when i interviewed him that like he kept referring to the movie as pg-13 because you know pg-13 people say is the spielberg rating because he didn't want things to be R. So the studios created a rating for his movies. I think Raiders of the Lost Ark was like one of the first PG-13. And so Gary somehow remembered this movie as being PG-13. And, um, you know, the stuff that Mandy was talking about, this definitely could have been a PG-13 movie. I feel like it's very, for a PG movie with the swearing and the drinking and the jokes and the humor, it's definitely a, a more of an edgy PG movie, you know, that which explains the touchstone connection pretty well. Yeah, if this movie had come out just a few years later, it absolutely would have been PG-13. Yeah. Yeah, over here, it's a PG, which is, I think you're supposed to have a, a parent with you for like 10 or under or something. Mm. But it's a little bit more lenient. We now have a 12 rating. Um, I think even like the year after this came out, 12 started being a thing. Okay, um, similar material to this. There's There's no few films or genre that I can say is similar to this, but we do have a lot of films with kind of animated crossovers. Like you were saying, Mandy, people go into cartoons and stuff. Have you seen anything that you could say is similar to this? Yeah. The only one I can think of is the one I mentioned earlier, which is cool world, which I loved back in high school. Okay. Probably only because it had Brad Pitt in it. Honestly, (laughs) Um, I can't think of any others. Yeah. Even like Mary Poppins and bed knobs and broomsticks do not go as far as this goes. Right, yeah. And we'd, we'd eventually get Space Jam, but even that... Oh, yeah, I forgot about it, Space Jam. Yeah, it's it's not this. No. 
there's nothing else quite like this, I think. No, exactly. Okay. Let's, let's talk about it. Did you enjoy Who Framed Roger, Roger Rabbit? I did. I really did. And the longer it sat with me, I think the more I've come to appreciate it for what they were trying to do and, and really what they did. I mean, it's a pretty spectacular piece of art. Yeah. It's just, it, it's almost shocking how good it is that you don't notice that it's cartoons interacting with real people and mm-hmm. flicking ties, carrying trays around, passing drinks and paper between each other. Like it was when Paddington came out uh, and Paddington 2, there were comments of how good it is to have this CG character doing it. But I think it's even better here because you just stop, you stop thinking what they're doing. Uh, you know, Bob Hoskins is stood there acting to thin air with a right. handcuff dangling off him. It's so, so good. There's just, it's it's pretty much flawless. Yeah. Well, so he wasn't completely acting to thin air because Charles Fleischer actually stood in the background wearing a full Roger Rabbit suit delivering his lines while they were filming. I don't know if you came across that bit of trivia, which I think is hilarious. But absolutely, I think, like you you mentioned the the similarity of the, the Muppet Christmas Carol and Michael Caine, like just acting very serious against the Muppets, Mm. but he actually had Muppets to act against. And here, Bob Hoskins, apart from Roger, all of the cartoons weren't there and he was still absolutely engaged with this thing that didn't exist until it was drawn. I think casting someone like Bob Hoskins is a really good way to go because he, certainly over here, he had a real reputation as a man's man, you know, doing fairly gritty films, really honest performances. So he's someone who who sells it well, and you can believe everything he goes through—the alcoholism, the stress of it all—because mm-hmm. uh, because he's a, a solid character actor at it, and his great American accent. Like when I learned yeah. that he's British, that that impressed me. That was like wow. <laughs> yeah, like I, I I forget that he is putting on an accent again because it's not the kind of broad American that you see for some British actors going over. Um, over here, he, he's almost most well known for a series of adverts he did, um, for the British Telecom, BT. And he's got a proper Cockney accent. He was, he was famous for his line of, it's good to talk. And then you hear him in this and there's none of it coming through. He, he committed to this role really well. Yeah. I wouldn't have known that he wasn't American if the internet didn't tell me. So Lance, you wrote several songs on this. Was there a jumping off point for doing them? Something where you went, okay, I'm going to do something about each character, each situation. You know, I'm, there's a huge expanded universe of it. Like Marvel hmm. Comics did a, uh, like, I think there's like 20 issues they did. And then they did a Toontown spinoff. And so there's a lot of characters and they also did a sequel comic. You know, there's two sequels. There's the, the script that never got produced. And then there's Marvel did a thing called The Resurrection of Doom. And then, I, and then I'd read all the books. And so I wanted to kind of create an EP that connected all the worlds because I felt like the movie is an interesting slice and the movie is definitely like the canon of, of the story. But I wanted to connect what happened before this, you know, in the, in the prequel script. Roger is a, it's called the Toon Platoon and he's in a World War II flying ace and he <laughs> um, goes abroad and then they have to, you know, th- they have to fight the Nazis. And then Spielberg didn't want to produce it because he was, you know, he was sensitive about that when he, mm, okay. after he did Indiana Jones, he didn't want to use Nazis as entertainment. So they changed, he, he, he passed on doing the script, but there's this whole background of Roger's story and then everything that happened after. So I wanted to 
make a like a you know 30 minute synopsis of like the broader story because to me it's it's fascinating and like mandy was saying that it's you forget that he's a cartoon character because he's so believable and real and you know the story just was in interesting to me and you know also one of the undercurrents of this movie is uh the tunes don't have justice because the society is biased against them and and they're just kind of like the the underclass people of this culture and there's a lot of similarities to racism and prejudice that is like very intentional when they made this movie so my the ep kind of has a social justice angle to it about anti-prejudice not not to like make something serious silly but like to try to bring that social conscious element out which was very intentional when they made this you know and and in the book too that gary wrote yeah because the book is a, a lot more serious with it and a lot darker for the character as i understand no i haven't read it definitely <laughs> yeah and and in the book not to spoil well the book has like a very sad ending uh -huh. um I, I don't want to spoil it but it it is definitely like a twist that is not in the movie okay yeah i recommend the first the books are all great there's three and then mm. there's a you did a short story anthology called the road to toontown um okay. but the first one is great uh, who censored is like a very i very much recommend it oh so i have a question then i i read that there was an alternate ending to the movie and i'm wondering if that's the twist you're talking about in the book Hmm. I'm curious what, well, we can, you, since you all talk about the movies, it's not spoiling if we talk no. about like the alternate ending, right? Right. What is the, if you tell me what it is and I'll tell you if it's <laughs> what's in the book. How's that? So the alternate ending, Roger died. Right. That's what happens in the book. Okay. Too. No. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He didn't make it out of the, the final showdown with Judge Doom in the alternate ending. In in the book, it's interesting because the characters are comic strip characters and they talk in word bubbles and only baby Herman is the one who does animation as well. And so Roger creates a doppelganger of himself because he gets killed and the doppelganger helps Eddie to solve the crime. But there's this urgency of time because he knows he only has a week to live. The doppelgangers they make in the comic strips in Wolf's book to be as stunt doubles. And so Roger knows that he has a finite amount of time. So as the book ends, you, you know, and he's, he's fading away and, and thanking Eddie for his help. And it's kind of like, it's emotional. It's like, he knows that he he's going to die. And so his art and his performance and his work is like, takes on this significance of as a performer, which has a whole different arc to it. But that's interesting that I didn't know they thought of including that in the movie, but that really would have changed things. I think. I'm glad they didn't do that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, that's that's probably dark, and, and that is very honest to it being a noir story. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure it would work for kids if you did that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let, let's talk a bit on Jessica, Mandy. You said up top that she was, from certainly from your memory, one of the reasons not to be able to watch this. Do you think your parents were right to say not to watch it? No. Okay. Not at all. Oh. Um, I mean, she is definitely very highly sexualized, but I mean, she doesn't, it, it's that famous line, I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way. Mm. I mean, that's honestly all it is. Like her personality and the things that she actually did, she, she didn't do anything inappropriate. She just wanted to love her Roger. Yeah, their relationship is really well done. The The fact that she's actually into him because of his personality, he doesn't salivate over her in the same way we see all the other other men doing 
Right. Um, and, and that line, I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way. It's reminiscent of what we saw in Sunset Boulevard. I am big, it's the pictures that got small. Yeah. She's so possessed of what she is. Mm-hmm. I, I, we had a message, um, in fact, two, in fact, three, but we had one from uh, Laura Esperi on uh, Twitter who said that she remembers being so fascinated by Jessica Rabbit, just really drawn to her, which I'm hoping is a pun, Laura, by the way. Um <laughs> Looking back, I think this is why I went through various stages and attempts of trying to get my hair that colour during my 20s, only to be very disappointed each time. I think she was my first symbol of feminine sexuality that I can remember. Not a great surprise, she was hardly subtle. Thankfully, I grew to embrace a slightly more nuanced version of it, and her voice was amazing. Now, talking to my wife as well, she said exactly the same thing. She remembers... Uh, everything about Jessica, you know, the, the amazing voice, the hair, the dress, that she is this hi- uh, hyper-sexualized, but kind of, you know, perfect woman with the curves. But actually thinking about it now and talking about what would draw you to her, it's the confidence of the character. Mm-hmm. It's the fact she owns every room and every situation she's in, and she's always in control. Uh, she's supporting other people's stories. She doesn't necessarily have her own agency, but she is an active force in this and driving it forward. And and I think that's actually really interesting. It's not, we don't get much from her in a character to show that she's different than what we're seeing that we're told that she's not bad, mm-hmm. but she is a very well-written character to, to make people like her over and above the fact she has got this. I think I, I saw someone, one of the trivia was like, if she was a real person, her measurements would be 40, 23, 40. That's just not healthy. Yeah, no, I don't, I'm not <laughs> sure that's even possible. <laughs> yeah, I think, gosh, if, if a character like this were written now, I think she would absolutely have been damseled, if not just mm. all out fridged. And that they didn't do that to her, I think is pretty great. I mean, she did end up captured, but she was captured with Roger. She wasn't captured to drive Roger to do something. So I, I feel like... Even though, like you said, she doesn't have a ton of agency, she's still, she's still got her own confidence. Yeah. You know, she knows who she loves. She knows what she wants. She knows what she needs to do. And that's what she's trying to do. Even though we're not there for her story, we're there for Rogers. That doesn't mean her story is any less important to her. Yeah. And I think that's actually probably more what I mean when I say agency. Her story is in support of his Yes. Um, but it is Who Framed Roger Rabbit, so. Yeah, I mean, we probably could have gotten, we could probably do this whole movie from her perspective and have another great movie. Mm. Uh, so the film almost goes out of its way to make you think she is possibly the murderer or possibly involved in the murders. Yes. What did you think was happening as it went through? Was there a point where you were like, oh, don't trust her? <laughs> yeah, when she hit Roger over the head and put him in the trunk of the car, and then they cut to the gun shooting um, Maroon mm. and they didn't show us who it was. But then of course, Eddie sees her running through the warehouse. Of course I thought that she had something to do with it. I I think even in my notes, I was like, Oh shit, Jessica was behind it the whole time. <laughs> and then of course we find out that's not true. It was a brilliant piece of misdirection, but I did for probably about five or 10 minutes of the movie. I thought she had something to do with it and that, she was working actually i didn't expect judge doom to be the actual villain because it seemed so obvious <laughs> yeah <laughs> he is pretty and villainous <laughs> he is he's so villainous that you don't expect him to be the actual villain um and i, I think that's pretty brilliant too 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. It's like a, a twist on a twist on what you expect. And and going back, watching the movie again, I was struck by Judge Doom's rise to power is Eddie talks about when Teddy was killed and they're trying to stop a bank robbery and this guy got away with a million simoleons and then you find out Judge Doom got elected by bribing people with the simoleons, mm. right? It's mm-hmm. like the connection there that he it sets it up. And so it's almost like if he weren't the villain, it would it would make sense, but it's um watching it again you kind of see how he has to be. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Christopher Lloyd is clearly enjoying himself. <laughs> yeah. Did you notice that the entire time he was on screen, he never blinked? Yeah, that is amazing. I, I don't know how he did it, but it definitely contributed to his just general creepiness. Yeah, I don't think I noticed, but it absolutely, it, I mean, it fits the whole bit where he's going away at the end with no eyeball in um, and trying to cover his face. But yeah, there is just something sinister about him all the way through, which I think uh, it works to make it more of a kid's cartoon. Yeah. I didn't expect him to turn out to actually be a tune. That that mm. twist actually surprised me. I feel like I probably should have seen it coming, but I didn't. And, and Lars, I think I've heard you mention somewhere that, that there is a tune he is supposed to be. Yeah. So his origin story is he's a, he's he's supposed to be a, a German American immigrant named Baron von Rotten, who okay. was uh, in the silent cartoons, and because he had a squeaky voice when they started adding sound um he couldn't get casted because you know the squeaky voice at the end my voice i talk just like this right like Mm. his voice prevented him from getting work so he became bitter and jaded and hateful towards the tunes that were getting the roles he used to get and so he goes into politics right as any washed up reality star might do (laughs) and or whatever former entertainer and (laughs) becomes a uh you know tries to he hates the cartoons because he was out of work because of his his role and so in the follow-up in the sequel they bring him back to life because they take the the dip they drain the dip somehow from the pipes and then put him back on the multi-pane camera and bring him back to life as as the original character he was and so he's a black and white character which is why he has no color to him too which is interesting so that's his origin story and uh yeah it's interesting. Yeah. And there's a hint of that when he talks to Betty Boop of the same things. You know, no one wants black and white cartoons. But that's basically one of the stories in, is it Sound of Music? No, not the Sound of Music. Singing in the Rain as they're, as they're transitioning to talkies and sort of training people to talk better for the mics and stuff. Mm-hmm. God, this film's, yeah. this film's got good stuff going on. <laughs> it does. I I found myself remembering Sunset Boulevard several times mm. whenever uh, we were watching this. So that was, I'm glad we watched that movie earlier this year. Yeah. The, the sign on the front of the tram going to Sunset right? Boulevard is exactly the same sign as Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, speaking, speaking of the tram, can I share a quick, interesting story about one of the actors, the kids mm. that pulls Eddie onto the back? Yeah. So when Eddie's walking out and he catches the ride, when the kid who gives him the cigarette, that kid later became Chris Be- Chris Brown's bodyguard and was with Chris Brown when Chris Brown got arrested for assault at that oh. club. So that's interesting. This this bad boy kid never gave up his, his bad boy image. <laughs> I, so that's interesting. I forget his name, but that's a little footnote about the actor. Hey, mister, ain't you got a car? Right? Yeah. That kid. Yeah. 
Oh. Yeah, and, and that I, I, is definitely something I did not pick up on as a child, where he's like, oh, no, it's LA. We've got the best public transport system in the world. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is a genuinely funny line in a film, but I wouldn't have picked it up until only a few years ago. So. <laughs> and And I think there's a lot in the film... You know, we're talking about it as a kid's film and having action, having a really obvious villain, um, a lot of good comedy in it. But as good as Disney has always done it, this works for kids and for adults. And I think it's all the, the action is really the, the sort of comedy and the visual gags really good for kids. There is so much of the dialogue that has that sort of element to it or details about, you know, having just come out of a war, the joke about Harvey. Things that I, I right. can I can even remember watching it and saying to my mum, like, I do not understand that. And her having to explain, oh, well, there's this old film that's based on a play about a rabbit, um, which I only saw last year. And it's it's just almost a throwaway gag. But you see these references sort of linking up and going, okay, that's actually quite a clever you know thing to bring in. And some of the references were like put in, you know, kind of shoehorned in. Like Harvey, the movie came out. I think in 49 and Roger okay. Rabbit takes place in, in 47. Yeah. So it's anachronistic. Another anachronistic thing is the cartoon, the goofy cartoon that Roger watches when he's hiding out with Eddie did not come out until like a, a year or two later. And they purposefully used it because it was Goofy's um, physical slapstick comedy. So right. to tell the story, they had to bend the chronology. And I don't know, you know why I'm I'm so interested in that, but you that's something you you wouldn't notice. But that's like a cool part of the storytelling, you know. Minor details. We have cartoons living with humans, so these things maybe don't matter as much. Yeah, but it it utterly works to help root it in. It is a bit like our world because they've got references and things that we would understand, and then right. it's this ridiculous fantasy. Oh, there's cartoons as well. There, there was one bit that I wanted to that sort of caught me out watching it now. The first time we were properly introduced to the dip is the squeaking shoe nuzzling up to, um, nuzzling up to Doom. And he picks up a shoe and he sticks it in the dip. Now that shoe is still a cartoon. At what point is there a difference between the kind of prop that is the shoe or the sword and the kind of sentient, you know, Roger, Mickey Mouse, Bugs Bunny and so on? Is there a difference between them or do they make cartoon props? That's a I don't great think question. there's a difference. Hmm. Like I was, I, I think that was straight up murder. I was really upset at, at that scene. You know, that shoe is voiced by N- Nancy Cartwright, who did Bart Simpson. Oh, really? That was her first, her first on-screen role. Oh, Just brilliant. another little trivia. Yeah. And, and I love this idea that it's voiced when it's a squeaking shoe. Right, right. When he's screaming. <laughs> yeah. Or she or whatever. Yeah. That, as a kid, that was like the first, like, um, example of evil to me, you know, like that was like seeing that, like it's so... Mandy, it's like, do you agree? It's like just so horrific because that shoe is so sweet and it's right. so messed up. That shoe did absolutely nothing. And all of a sudden it's getting killed, like obliterated out of existence. Mm. And I, I think it's just as horrific if he had done the same thing to Bugs Bunny. I, I really like that. It's, it, you know, a sense of evil. Absolutely it is. And they go really hard on it. They could have softened it a bit like, oh, no, it's just reducing it and the colors will be reused or something they actually say you remember we thought there was no way to kill a tune well he found it <laughs> like oh no it's actually using the word kill oh good 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 <laughs> yeah they did uh cut back on a, a little bit of of judge james evil apparently there was a version of the script where it was going to be revealed that he killed bambi's mom <laughs> and they didn't put that in there so the real bad guy is man <laughs> <laughs> 
And that's it. Talking about the greater Disney world, Roger's supposed to be Thumper's nephew. And he's supposed to be, okay. it's revealed, he's Bugs' son. So that they are all connected. So uh, it's l- more trivia there. It's all the same world, which it's believable. He could have killed Bambi's mm. mom. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's dark. That's dark. <laughs> it is dark. So uh, moving a bit into our favorite stuff, because I, I, I know, Mandy, the thing looking at your notes on this was just the sort of proliferation of cartoons got you. Mm-hmm. You were so in it. So, so talk to us a bit about that. What did you enjoy in seeing just all the cartoons coming in? It was really just got this massive dose of nostalgia. I remember when I was a kid, I, you know, Saturday morning cartoons are not really a thing anymore. But when, when we were kids, you know, Saturday mornings, you got up early so that you could watch Looney Tunes and, and all these other cartoons that were on. And to see them again... Like Woody Woodpecker was there and, you know, Bugs Bunny was there and Porky Pig was there and Yosemite Sam was there. And, you know, uh, it was so it just made me miss the way cartoons used to be. Right. You know, even watching the, the scene at the beginning where Roger and baby Herman were filming their cartoon uh, and just watching the hijinks and the physical comedy that was happening. I remember when all cartoons used to be like that. And I don't think they really are like that anymore. And so it just, it made me happy just to, just to sit there and watch kind of what used to be for a little while. And um, getting to see them all on screen together was pretty amazing. I think I read that there were over 140 different animated characters in this and a solid 80 of them came from like Warner Brothers and, you know, all of the th- the hoops they had to jump through to get mm-hmm. them on screen together, you know, like Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse had to have the exact same amount of screen time, the exact same amount of lines. That's why they were they had the scene together. The same thing with Donald Duck and Daffy Duck. And I love that they went through the trouble of making it happen because as a kid, when you're watching cartoons, you don't care if it's a Disney cartoon or a Warner Brothers cartoon. It's just a cartoon that you love to watch. And so to see them all together just felt right, if that makes sense. Mm. It was great. When they designed Roger, you know, he was supposed to be like, have the heart and look of Disney, but like the movement and comedy of Warner Brothers and then like the, the, the adult element of Tex Avery, right? And mm-hmm. so to make that fusion happen when Richard Williams designed him, it's really bolstered by having that universe of the cartoons and it all flows together. And I agree, it, it's spectacular. And, you know, other than Ready Player One, like having such a, so much intellectual property in one place, it seems like that might not happen again. You know, like that's right. such a, spe- a special moment where Spielberg coming on board they uh, they wanted to, everyone wanted to be his best friend so he props to him for negotiating that yeah yeah uh, there were some missing that i wish had been there like like tom and jerry was a staple you know popeye <laughs> you know those weren't there well, popeye's but... in popeye's in the scene at the end did you know that like where they're watching him they all come in in the okay. final scene okay no i didn't see that and there's supposed to there was this cut scene where there's a funeral where it's marvin acme's funeral and Foghorn Leghorn is giving the eulogy, and Popeye <laughs> is one of the pallbearers. Okay. So, so yeah, he's, his his role in the movie was cut down a lot. So, but I agree, he should have been in it more. And Woody Woodpecker too is. Yeah, I it 
it just it made me smile, honestly. Like even when I wasn't really paying attention to what was happening on screen, I was smiling just because they were all there. Mm. And it's it's you saying about like you know taking the trouble to get the deal together to cross over and writing the characters in and using just such a range of characters, but then the effort they go to to animate such a range and to bring mm-hmm. them in at every single scene they can. You know, over and above all the work they do about how they're shading them for different lights, how they're having them interact with the people. It's just, it must have taken so much effort to go, right, now we need to do Lena Hyena, so we need to design her differently and incorporate elements of this, and then we need to get a voice actor in, and there's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, well, I think there's a reason that at the time this was made, it was, like, it was the most expensive movie ever made at the time. Yeah, with, I, I think I saw with the longest credits ever. Yes. <laughs> Which, yes. yeah, I can believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why when the sequel had speed bumps, they, they were like, well, it was such a headache. Like, mm-hmm. it was great. Let's let's take a knee on this and not not do that. If Disney isn't so excited about Jessica and this and that, like, yeah. Because it, you're right. You, you got, you're both right. It was so, such a singular effort. And that's why it's special because it's, it's doubtful something like this would ever happen again. Mm. You know? So, Lars, you've been watching this for about 30 years it sounds like is there stuff yeah yeah, is there stuff you'd say okay yeah that is my favorite moment my favorite joke performance what stands out to you in this well i mean my favorite my favorite scene is when uh, when eddie is going back into the tunnel and he is you know about to take the swig of whiskey and he and he shoots the bottle and even though it's problematic that there's like the native american bullet who's mm-hmm. doing the war chant and stuff when he the, that scene to me is is awesome because that's where eddie finds the strength to both conquer the demons of his past which is you know the post-traumatic stress that has led him to alcoholism of losing his brother and realize that he needs roger and in, in writing you know like every great character has something they want and something they need that they don't know they want and eddie wants to work for tunes again and he needs to be sober and like be his old self to do that so that scene you know even in a comedy mm. uh, that scene is always like stuck with me especially as i've gotten older and you know i'm i, I stopped drinking of, like three years ago and that for me was a mm. huge improvement in my life that that allowed me to like do things i couldn't before and so i relate to that character in a way that I, as a six-year-old i never thought i would you know yeah, it it is. I mean, he plays uh, an actual alcoholic. It's not that he's a drunkard. It, when he's sat in Maroon's office and you, he sees the bottle and he just sits there sort of rubbing his mouth like, oh, yeah, I am thirsty. <laughs> you know, right. it's, it's a Pavlovian response of there's alcohol. I'm going to get it in me. Um, Have a drink, Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then the way they set up the tunnel, it's this dark tunnel, it's nighttime, he's getting a gun ready, they're, they're really setting up, like, Toontown is going to be a dangerous place for him. And then you get the song going into Toontown. <laughs> and it's all, <laughs> like, he's so scared of it, but it's all buzzing hummingbirds and, you know, nice happy trees. <laughs> well, what he fears is, what he fears is that juncture in his life where, having been this person who had family and love and his career on lockdown, suddenly got ripped out of from under him sense, uh, senselessly. And so his return to Toontown is this like juxt- juxtaposition of, of that tragedy, mm. you know? And so it's like, he has to go back. And so it's, it's like the hero- heroic journey. Right. And, that, yes. and it's, and, and so that, that scene, yeah, kind of undercuts the, um, 
the sadness. And then when, when he finally gets there, everything, all the references, like that part of the movie is fantastic. And also I want to say like the soundtrack, I, I, I grew up, I went to school with Alan Silvestri's daughter. And so we would, you know, go, go to their house and talk to him about the movie. And he was such a fan of, uh, Jaco Pistorius with the free jazz movement and the way they juxtapose the bebop mm. of the forties to the free jazz of like the, the kind of experimental jazz of the fifties and sixties with Toontown that the music is like an interesting um, element of that. And I, I really loved as a kid talking to him about why he wrote the score and what that was like. So that was more, more information, but yes, my favorite scene is the, is going to Toontown. That whole part of the movie is amazing uh, i can i can understand that sort of thing being influential on you yeah so influential and the idea also you know and as an artist as a rapper like for me it's always been about sampling and like genre is is the clothes that we wear that's what mm. Al, um that's what lin-manuel miranda said what he likes about weird al is that genre is we put on a style to convey a certain truth and roger rabbit is a movie that really plays with the fluidity of genre for a greater narrative. And when I'm sampling like a punk band or doing a classical beat or, you know, musically that was a big influence on me, both the soundtrack and the movie, that kind of postmodern pop culture element. You know, it's, it's, it's a stretch to say it's, it's adjacent to hip hop, but it's similar in the idea that like the cut and paste element of culture mm. is something that can be powerful if it's done with the right emotion and artistry. So that's kind of cool. And, and like you were saying, combining some of that in Roger himself, he looks one way, he acts another, he moves and, and yet another. <laughs> yeah, so cool. he's a great, such a great character for that reason. Mm. T- talking on the songs, Eddie's song, when he's he realises he can make the weasels die laughing, like it, Bob Hoskins sells that so wonderfully. He just suddenly realises, oh, this thing that I hate, being silly and laughing and, and all this, I can use it as a weapon. And he does this great thing and he's on the pogo stick and everything. And when we get to that moment where he, he's been doing some pretty good rhymes throughout it and he says, I'm through taking falls, I'm bouncing off the walls. Without the gun, I'd have some fun. I'd kick you in the nose. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's expecting it. Like, even all the, you know, 10-year-old kids watching it would be expecting what the ne- next word coming is. And they go with nose. And it makes it funnier. I, I love yeah. Go on. Yeah, yeah, no, I was going to say something about Eddie's backstory, and we get a glimpse of this when we see the when we see the uh, desk of all his memories with um, Teddy. There's that shot of them dressed as clowns with with the dad, you know. And so his backstory is he was a he was in the circus, right? And it, it's like a quick moment. So that him doing the singing and dancing goes back to his training as a circus clown performer, which was his inroad into becoming a detective because he still wanted to do show business, mm. but help people in show business. And so that's an interesting moment because that's like his return to his, his, his original career as a performer. And so Eddie, that's why Eddie can take the falls and juggle is because he used to be a circus clown. Mm. Yeah. And he just slips into it, but the, the film has done, I mean, the film has set up so many things early on that it delivers on it. it, The shot of alcohol for Roger and what it does to him to then use it against doom. So it delivers on it pretty quick, but early on you see the hole that he ends up using on the magnet. You see the mallet, you see the fact that he was in the circus. The the film absolutely subscribes to Chekhov's gun, but it sets up so much. You don't know what's going to go off when. Interesting. That's a great point. It's it's solid writing all the way through. What, what I particularly loved in that, in the song bit is on your commentary, you had a comment about Eddie doing the rhymes. And saying, oh, he's basically freestyling. It's like eight mile. 
<laughs> I can't believe you listened to that. That's <laughs> I, funny. <laughs> I, I have never thought I, that anyone could compare Roger Rabbit to 8 Mile, but that absolutely works. <laughs> <laughs> it's the final rap battle. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I, I, I think, oh, you know, we've mentioned him already, but Christopher Lloyd is just wonderful in this. Because he's, for the most part, he's actually doing a different sort of villain than he did in Star Trek. You know, he's he's a lot quieter, but with a lot more menace to it. He's not all shouty. And then at the end, he just turns it up to 11. And he goes full on villain. They, the way they style him with that long kind of rain mac, the long leather coat. So as he's flying across, it's like a cape. He's like a sort of bat swooping on him. Hmm. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I really paid that much attention to it. I thought the way he was dressed was kind of weird the whole way through. Hmm. And so I don't think I noticed kind of that it it did turn into that cape-like thing at the end. There was a lot going on, though. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to catch everything the first no, watch no, through. No, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like I say, watching it back now and just appreciating all the technical elements where you go, okay, so they must have had wires for this. They must have had this on animatronics or, or someone off screen, like bits where someone's yeah. reaching something at the bottom. So clearly someone's hand was there, but they've animated over the top of it. It, mm-hmm. it it works so well. Like, did it stand out to you, Mandy? Is there any point where you thought, oh, that cartoon's interacting with that person? No, it all felt very natural. I, I remember having the thought, like, people who do special effects now should go back and watch this and figure out how they did it. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> it just felt... I never had a moment where I thought, wow, you can tell they're acting to nothing. Yeah. I, th- I think there was a thing about they kept working on it because there was a bit where like they, they move one of the lights. So the lights start swinging. So they had to reanimate Roger mm-hmm. to make sure the light fit him. And, and it almost feels like they're doing things like that to show off, you know, other, other cartoons, other movies would keep the light static. We're going to swing it. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and that's become a show business trope, right? That, fr- that phrase bump the lamp, mm. meaning like if something's hard, do it because it's going to pay off. Don't do the easy way out. Yeah, and 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 the fact that they had to do all the shadows and do animate every frame differently is mm-hmm. it works, you know. And it doesn't maybe drive the story, but it gives the realism that they're back there in the speakeasy. And so I've I've seen shirts that say "Bump the Lamp" that have like a cartoon lamp, and it's a oh, really? yeah, that's a awesome. filmmaker term about that. Which is why people who make films now should definitely go back and watch this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if if they hadn't done it. I think from from the audience's perspective, it really wouldn't have changed much. We wouldn't have missed it. But from the filmmaker's perspective, this was a project of love. They were passionate about it and they wanted to do the best they could. And so they did. And it absolutely paid off. And, and for that reason, Mandy, I, I guess that's why we're talking about this 30 years later, right? Because they did. It's it's uh, it's it's made it timeless. The t- the energy they put in that, and shout out to Richard Williams because like, you know his, the animation with like the checkered floor in the kitchen, like the hard stuff to animate, he figured out what to do, and no one no one will ever like be able to do cell animation like that again. And yeah, he he he's he's his his animation chops are just amazing. Yeah, mm. yeah, I think this is definitely one of those movies that holds up 30 years later yeah it's something you, you hear referenced in a load of places not only that it has its own references but it's its own thing um we had a, a great comment on twitter from at osu bookworm who said that they love this movie it kind of appeals to me because i love anything about the 40s noir 
uh, but also good story of redemption. Judge Doom is a great villain who's still scary today. Roger is a bit, bit of ridiculous humor and Eddie's evolution is great. And I think, yeah, Judge Doom is actually scary in the end. And, and it still works. It would still be threatening to any kid sitting down to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we also had a favorite moment come in from Garrett, who was previously on the show when we talked about Robin Hood, who loves cartoons. He has a cartoon review website. He said, Who Framed Roger Rabbit probably came out at the exact right time for me a month before I turned 10. I knew and liked cartoons and knew the rules, and I had learned a bit about some of the people who made the old ones, but was still young enough to take things at face value and not be jaded or fully grasp the darker themes. It was also right at the beginning of when my parents started taking me and my brother to the movies at a really regular rate. And other than a few references, trench coats and sunglasses and maybe a few other surface level things, this was the very first piece of legitimate noir I ever saw. He wrote a lot more, but we don't have time. <laughs> Suffice it to say, I think this is also one of Garrett's favorites. Mm. So it was it was cool to see all the folks uh, chiming in on Twitter about this movie. Yeah, it, it's an easy film to gush about because there's so much good going on. It's pretty flawless. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Had you, either of you did either of you watch the three shorts that came out after, like the uh, Honey, the, the uh, Tommy Trouble Roller Coaster Rabbit and Trail Mix Up? No. I, I feel like I've seen one of them. Was it before, like, Honey, I Blew Up the Baby or something? Yeah, Honey, yeah. I Shrunk the Kids. Okay. And part of the schism with, with Spielberg was that he wanted to use Roller Coaster Rabbit for arachnophobia because, you know, having these shorts helped boost ticket sales. Mm. And when they wouldn't let him, they, they put it before Dick Tracy, he became kind of resentful and that further alienated the Disney and Spielberg. But, uh, Mandy, you talked about how great the old school cartoons are and they're, they're all about like six minutes, but in it, Roger has to similarly babysit baby Herman and craziness happens. And they're all very funny and full of cameos. And like the guy who scored trail mix up, James Horner later did this Titanic score, you know, like mm-hmm. they are great. So I, I, I like the shorts almost as much as the movie because yeah. they're very funny and they, they came out like every few years. And the last one came out in, I think 92, but they're all on YouTube and they're also all in the bonus features of the, dvd and stuff so they're awesome cool okay if there was one before honey i shrunk the kids i've probably seen that one but i don't remember it because that mm. movie came out when i was young so <laughs> Tra- trail trail mix up is a great name that's a good comic name <laughs> oh I-, I spoke wrong the person who did sorry he the person who scored um tommy trouble was the, not not trail mix up did Titanic. There's also there's a fourth one called There's a Hair in My Suit Soup H A R E <laughs> where Roger works in the kitchen. But that there's screenshots of it online, but that got canceled that when Spielberg decided he wasn't down with Disney using Roger anymore. And Roger has some cameos in Tiny Toon Adventures, which is interesting, being an Amblin property. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah, th- this definitely feels in that sort of vein. That kind of slightly later cartoons coming in. Tiny Toons and Animaniacs, and it's got more of that sort of vibe to it at times. Mm-hmm. Can we talk for one second? I oh. wanted to say something about the, the video games. Like, there's mm. two things that are interesting about um, the Roger Rabbit games um, and how that is was like showing how international licenses were, um, you know, they're still figuring that out. There's two versions of the NES game. One of them was licensed in Japan, and when they brought it to America, the people who did the action figures had the proprietary license. So they reskinned the game uh, as a Bugs Bunny game. So if you play the Bugs Bunny Crazy Castle NES oh, really? game, you could all the characters, it's like it's set in the Roger Rabbit universe with brick walls and 
characters turning green and safes and stuff, but you have to play it as Bugs Bunny. And then when they made it a Game Boy game, the dude who designed the Game Boy game later went on to create the Resident Evil franchise because it was a similar like noir, noir problem solving kind of game. So it's interesting how the multimedia element of the, of the movie kind of, you know, it gave, it gave birth to a lot of the current video game stuff. Mm. So that's interesting. God, it was, it was such a different time where you could release basically different games in different countries <laughs> or the right. same game as different properties. Crazy. Right, right. And, uh, and you've reminded me, talking about the scores and everything, the cinematographer, um, he was clearly working in the same studios and same directors because he did uh, all the Back to the Future films. He did Hook and Jurassic Park and Apollo 13. So clearly in that. Mandy, you might wow. be interested. The guy who, did the, who was director of photography on this did The Holiday. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> he has done a range of stuff. He did both Garfield films. Haven't seen those. That's that's a guy who's doing cross genre. Roger <laughs> Rabbit to Jurassic Park to The Holiday. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty great. All right. Well, is there anything else that we need to discuss about who framed Roger Rabbit? Now, when we were talking about this on Twitter and I said, you know, has anyone got any thoughts, any memories of it? A couple of people said they hadn't actually seen it yet. Um, Katie Shrew, This A.E. Shaw. Uh, Katie actually has a small son. So I was wondering, what do we think is a good age to be introduced to this? Lars, you said you were, I think, five, six. Uh, Mandy, a little bit older than that, you were introduced to this. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little. Is, is there a point at which you're like, okay, yes, it's good because it's got this good comedy and action, but they're not necessarily going to uh, lose it with some of the sexuality or violence? That's really hard for me because I don't have kids. And so I, I don't really have an age frame of reference, you know? Right. <laughs> but I would probably say somewhere between eight and 10. Okay. Lars, were you scarred watching this so early? Has this affected I you? Mean, for- <laughs> you know, it's the first time I heard swearing and like when uh, Eddie says, oh, son of a bitch, when Roger like mm. explodes all the liquor bottles. It's the first time I heard swearing and heard those words. And, um, you know, the humor, like I didn't get the sexual humor, but like where baby Herman goes, the whole thing stinks like yesterday's diapers. Like, that was hilarious to me. And so, you know, if I ever had the kid, like, I think probably first or second grade. I mean, it's, you know, it's not, it's scary though. I remember fr- having friends over who didn't want to watch it when I was little because it, the end was so terrifying. Right. And I mm-hmm. think that, yeah, but, but probably, yeah, probably not much younger than, than, than that. But also there's, uh, you know, you appreciate on different levels as you get older and, um, I would maybe show I would maybe show the, sh- the cartoons first to a kid because they're very like benign and funny and you know the mm-hmm. shorts that came after and it's, if they like it then maybe show them the movie later. That's my thought. That's yeah, that's very good. good shout. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Laura said the same thing. Uh, her memory of it was like, didn't his eyes pop out at some point? I can remember hiding, so I can't remember it exactly. <laughs> but <laughs> okay, all right. Well, if you would like to join the conversation, you can use the hashtag PC Deprived on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing, or you can send us an email to podcast at eloquentgushing.com. And you can find us all on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vose. Lars, it's been amazing having you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Mandy and Matthew, thank you. You both are super sweet. And um, thank you for having me and letting me go on and on about it. And yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter too, MC Lars. I, I do a two songs a month on Patreon and my Roger Rabbit album notes from Toontown is on Spotify and iTunes. And if you go to mclars.com, 
bandcamp.com. You can you can listen to the commentary I did for the entire movie if you haven't heard, heard enough about it. Yeah, we'll definitely link to those in the show notes for sure. Thank you. Yeah, it's really good. You clearly love it all the way through. It's so cool. Like, oh, <laughs> trivia. Oh, that's so funny. That's so cool. It's awesome. <laughs> and you've got a tour coming up? Yeah, you know, I'm doing, I'll be in the UK uh, in, in let's, I think April. No, yeah, April I'm doing UK tour and then I'm doing a May US tour. So nerdcoretour.com. And uh, either of you, if you want in any, either country, if you want tickets, just hit me up. I'll, Mandy or Matthew, I'll put you on the guest list. Let me know. Uh, we're we're going to try and come down to the Southampton one because when you're in London, we're in the US. <laughs> As is always the way, but we're going to try and come and uh, see you again at Southampton. Joiners. That's a great venue. Mm. Cool. Yeah, always a good fun show. And this is the, is it the 10th anniversary of this gigantic robot kills? That's right. My, oh. my, uh, my second record is the 10 year anniversary. So, so we have a band from Newcastle ruled by Raptors. They uh, learned the song. So I'm playing with a live band and my friends, Megaran and Cuckoo Kangaroo are on the tour too. So it's going to be super fun. And mm. yes, we'll, I'll be doing at least one, if not more of the Roger Rabbit songs. Ah, oh, great. Can't wait to see it. We are 100% funded by listeners like you through Patreon. Anything you can give, even $1 a month, it gives access to exclusive content and helps to support the network and develop new shows. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And don't forget to visit the homepage, eloquentgushing.com, where you can find links to all our other shows. And we'll be back next week with another episode where we'll talk about Kingsman, the Secret Service, with Tyler of Bacon and Eggs, a movie lovers podcast. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And doesn't a dying rabbit deserve a last request? Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, please visit eloquentgushing.com.